This is the Late Life Archive. I am Ty Besh, as always. Hello, and thank you for listening. Today, I have a very interesting interview to talk about. Patty is her name. Um, she lives in Georgia. Patty was born in the late 40s. This is a person I was very interested to to be able to talk to, specifically because um, she grew up in Detroit when people lived there <laughs> and worked there, and it was thriving, um, and there was industry, and uh, obviously now in 2020, things seem to be uh, ramping back up, but it has been quite a long time since Detroit was bustling with business. So yes, I will be talking about Patty, all of her childhood in and around Metro Detroit, and then uh, ultimately what got her to Georgia. So Patty had an interesting childhood. I want to start with this because it kind of explains why she did the things she did as a child. A lot of the people I talk to, I always try to get them thinking about, oh, you know, what was it like to be in the neighborhood as a kid, to be running around, and what, what was your friend group like? What'd you do in the summer, you know, when school was out and, and you had free time? And uh, and I've heard this a million and one times already. You know, back then, you could just do whatever you want, basically. Go out for the day. You know, there was less fear of, of children being out and about. And I love people. I love people's stories about when they were young. And it also it helps connect those, you know, synapses in terms of like getting them to to kind of get those stories back that they almost forgot they had. That's why I love starting there. With Patty, um, the interesting thing is she mentioned that she actually had a. She was struggling with. I, it might be a, a disease. We'll get to that once it's in my notes, but. She had a different childhood in terms of her energy level and what she was able to do. And interestingly enough, I think that kind of shaped her social life and kind of what she grew up doing and simply because what she was able to do. So she remembers, and I love this, she remembers living in Indian Village in one of those nice big houses that still exist to this day. I know this because I lived in West Village a block away from Indian Village for the year of, I believe, 2015. That was an interesting time for Detroit. It was while it was on the rise and things were still cheap. That is why I'm not there anymore. So, but yeah, I lived in one of these kind of houses that she's explaining. The way these houses work in Indian Village and West Village, very large. Um, it, was, it, you know, it, was, it was for uh, wealthy families. You'd have a front and a back stairwell and the back stairwell was for the servants. And, and a lot of the times there would be servant quarters or a whole separate house for servants. I don't want to say servants, but yes, it, very early on that's how it was. And then, of course, they started calling the help, I guess, because, you, you know, they started hiring people to do this stuff for the house. Either way, that's what these houses were made for. She remembers it quite well, even though she was about three years old, she was saying. She lived in a flat on the third floor. So a lot of these places, they were three to four floors high. They were basically like little mini mansions. And uh, because her parents at the time were quite poor, she mentioned that uh, her father, um, who later became a, a military contractor in Germany, her father uh, was in school at the time. Her mother wasn't working. 
you know, they had heard supporting a child kind of thing. And so, yeah, they lived, um, they kind of rented the third floor and they were actually made to uh, enter the house through the in quotes servant quarters. And the way the houses were made just to, to make it easier to picture is, is that the layout of the house was, so you basically never have to see the help walking around and where they were staying and stuff like that. They would kind of just pop up, right? This is hard to say, this kind of stuff, but that's just the way it was. Anyway, and so that's kind of what they were made to do is is kind of just stay low-key, you know, pay the rent, and you can live up on the third floor. And she remembers the house. She explained it to me pretty vividly in terms of the layout and stuff like that, and and I loved that. I love that she still had that all of these years later. This was back in, what, geez, the late 40s. I mean, I that's crazy that she can still have that vivid memory and I was very glad for her that she did. Her her someone in her family, she couldn't remember who, but someone in her family owned a hotel. And this was in the city of, she said, Highland Park, um, which is not too far from like downtown Detroit. And and so after they moved out of this place on the third floor, they actually um uh, her parents basically started helping to manage this hotel for the family so they could get paid and, and have a place to live. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And she remembers the hotel and it was, it was a larger room. You know, I think, I think she, she said they were kind of like family suites and there were actually a lot of people that were kind of paying weekly to live there. And so, although it was a hotel, it's, it still was treated kind of like a, you know, a, a place for people to rent in the area. And she remembers this because she remembers going door to door. This is probably when she was four or five, she said. Um, she remembers going door to door with her father and to collect the money for the week. And uh, that must have been kind of fun. You know, it's kind of like playing Monopoly, uh, but I guess for real life. Who knows what she learned other than, yeah, like you have to pay money to live somewhere. What her mom did was is uh, she cleaned the rooms. So she was kind of a maid for the hotel. In in her mother, actually, her mother's side was from Lebanon. I can't, I didn't ask her if she kind of looked foreign, um, her mother, uh, when she was, you know, younger, but she did have that, you know, that Lebanese blood. And so, um, you know, Metro Detroit is made up a lot, a lot, a lot of people from the Middle East. And I haven't done my research as to why there's such a big settlement there. I do know there is the largest settlement uh, from the Middle East in terms of a community in, I believe it's Dearborn. So who knows what it, what attracted them? It might have been the industry um, when Detroit was booming. Um, but yes, that that's something that happens all the time in Metro Detroit. You know, you have the Coney Islands and uh, all these different restaurants owned by, you know, families from, from Europe and Middle Eastern type people. And, and they just run it together as a family, which I love that idea. I wish I could do that. Interestingly enough, because of her parents' situation and the fact that they were both very busy and trying to make money all the time for the family, she went to school early. So she was in, uh, her mother enrolled her in school a year before you normally would, uh, simply because it was kind of free daycare <laughs> because they didn't have money to pay someone to babysit, et cetera, et cetera. She remembers this. She wanted to mention that. And I, I don't think I've heard of that. It might be more common than I think, but I, I do understand that people, especially nowadays, they they will enroll their kids early if they can see, if they see that, you know, they have potential to keep up with kids that age. Um, they're more advanced with their learning and their ability to learn. I get that. But I've never heard someone enrolling their kid into school just for free daycare. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, yeah, and then uh, what they did after that is they moved back to Kensington, Detroit. And I don't know if I've been there myself. I might have been there once before. She said it was a a beautiful uh, part of Detroit. They had finished basements back then, which was not very normal. Immediately after that, she said, all those houses are gone. She, anytime she's back in Michigan, she'll kind of go around to her, the old places and, um, or she'll look them up online. And sure enough, whatever was in Kensington, Michigan, in terms of these houses that she lived in with her family, they are gone, which is interesting to think about. I wonder what, what is there now in terms of if it's a development or God forbid, if it's a strip mall, who knows? That's the cool thing about the area uh, of Detroit is it's just seen so much change that if you were there before, you know, before, you know, before the collapse, and then you were also, you know, obviously you were there for after the aftermath of it all. That's really cool to be able to observe. So that's Kensington, Detroit. And then, and I, I asked her this because I was wondering, um, in a different interview with someone in Michigan, uh, who I will do an episode for uh, pretty soon from now, he mentioned that his family was basically a part of the, in quotes, white flight from Detroit. And this is kind of what it was um, deemed as because it was all of the middle class and upper class people that had been living in Detroit because of the, you know, because of the car industry that they were working in. And once that the collapse happened, they all fled and built up the suburbs. So he said his family was a part of this. She's saying that, you know, she, she was in high school in the uh, late fifties and the earth, I think she, I, I believe she graduated in 61. Uh, so I'm wondering if, if they were also a part of that. Uh, I'll have to do my research. But so what they did was uh, the family got a house in Farmington. Now, Farmington of Metro Detroit is is now very heavily populated with families, schools. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good school district. At the time, though, she remembers that the neighborhood was still being built when they moved in. It was farmland because there was still a lot of that farm fencing, like for horses and stuff. There was still a lot of that up, she remembers. And so that's what kind of inspired me to to think about, you know, if, if they were kind of a part of that era of we got to get out of Detroit, it's 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 about to, to bust. Either way, that's uh, she didn't move there until, you know, basically she got into high school. Another thing she mentioned was the family didn't have a car until then. And so this is what, uh, maybe maybe you start high school at 15, right? 14-ish. She's younger, so we can say 14, I guess. And uh, for 14 years of her life, the family would always take public buses. They never had a car. And imagine, in this time, Ford is booming. GM, I don't know about GM back then. I, I'm assuming they're both booming. The car industry in Detroit was booming. Everyone had a car. Like, look at the Lodge Freeway. Like everything was made for cars, giant roads, beautiful roads. Uh, and for your family to not have a car, that's, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to think about. So her mother got a car when she was in high school, basically because the father kind of forced her into driving because people needed to go places and, uh, blah, 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 blah. And she, she mentioned that her mother was such a nervous person that driving was not good. <laughs> so 
she recalled um, she had a very uneasy uh, foot, very jittery foot. So, you know, she would just be jerking back and forth all the time because her, her mom would be pressing on the gas pedal, letting go, pressing on the gas pedal, letting go. Never just steady. She remembers, <laughs> this was funny to hear, you know, when you get to a four-way stop, you kind of know when to go or if you get there at the same time then you kind of wave someone but there's there's an order to it right it makes sense she remembers that every time they would get to a stop sign her mom would know what to do she was so nervous and she was overthinking everything and then even worse is when she was at an, at an intersection and she had turned out into traffic that was just too much um and she would just sit there and just like oh she would she said she would just be just all in her head and and you know just saying stuff out loud like oh man oh uh. and then finally she would find it in herself to just floor it and just screech onto the road into traffic fascinating i'm assuming it makes sense because if you don't drive for however many years and then you're just expected to be able to drive around everywhere yeah it must be a little bit tough that's the story with her mom in the car oh i, I also liked that she she knew the roads pretty well so she lived in, what, four different houses, I believe, or, or or three or four different places growing up when she was young. And especially in Detroit, she knew the roads really well. And that was kind of cool. You know, I, I think that is, it's a, it's definitely an American thing, right? You know, because we, we do generally drive everywhere, a lot of people in that day specifically because they didn't have Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera, I'm not sponsored by Google, they had to memorize roads. And, you know, the Detroit was on the grid system, so it wasn't too hard. Um, but you did have to remember the names. So it was cool to see that she did have that still. The, both of the times she lived in Detroit, she lived very close to Belle Isle. And for those who don't know, Belle Isle is this beautiful place in Detroit. Um, it's right there on the river. Um, you can almost touch Canada. And there's this beautiful bridge that goes, you know, from Jefferson Ave. I believe that's the one on the river. Uh, over to Belle Isle. Beautiful bridge as well. You get to see the skyline. You get to see the city, the river, and then you can, you know, see on the other side to Windsor, which there's not much to look at, to be honest. But I saw Belle Isle when I was growing up, and especially when I lived there back in 2015. I, li I, I was in the same area. I could walk to Belle Isle, and I would do that a lot or ride my bike. It was a beautiful place. Not it was a little beat up in terms of the, the zoo that was there was closed, so that was all boarded up and abandoned, and it wasn't the, the most nicely kept place, but it was still beautiful to me. Now, imagine what that was like in her day. You know, everything was new, very well kept. It was, everyone was going there, going over the bridge with their new cars. It, it I can only imagine what it must have been like. And I, I, after this, I'm going to go straight to YouTube and type in Belle Isle. 1960 uh no sorry 1950 <laughs> because she just explained just the grass and the flowers and having picnics there and the beautiful fountain which still works to this day a little beat up didn't keep it the best but uh hey when you're a bankrupt city this is what happens she has really good memories of going to Belle Isle and a lot of the time she would walk there with her mother uh, to the park that's in front of Belle Isle, not go over the bridge, and they would just watch the cars go over. She explained it as, you know, when you're poor, it's kind of what you do for fun, is you kind of sit around and watch things. But she was spending time with her mother, and I think that's fine either way. That's actually the reason she got so interested in cars. So she kind of 
went on a riff about how she knew all the, the makes and models of cars, a lot of the, you know, the details about them and the history behind them. And, and, you know, back then, you know, cars were really cool and interesting, um, to follow. Um, weren't as many models, of course, uh, but they were, you know, they were better built. Yeah. They would say. And so that, yeah, watching those cars go to Belle Isle all the time, um, she got really into cars and, uh, we'll come back to this later. Uh, but in the meantime, she also mentioned, which is really kind of cool, and I did some research on this. She remembers being really close to a commercial stove that she thought was used by a gas company. And so I did, did some research, and it turns out that, sure enough, let me see what year this was. Detroit was very, uh, was kind of known as the commercial stove making city of the world. Um, they did most of the production for uh, stoves, like for house stoves and stuff like that. Here we go. In 1880, Detroit was recognized as the center of the stove making industry. But by 1902, the growth of the industries had relegated stove making to sixth place in Detroit, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so from 1880 until even when, you know, Patty was young, she remembers this very large stove. And that was because of the industry. And it was actually. Uh, it says here, um, stove and tire. And so it, it probably does have to do with uh, petroleum, gas, and, you know, and making rubber and stuff like that. But uh, also very good memory. Also, I wonder what that smelled like. I should have asked. I didn't ask. I didn't want to ask. I don't think at the time. Yeah. And then she, she talked about how her mom finally got a job uh, in the area and it was for Park Davis. She said it was the name. And her mother was a, a pill sorter. You know, she'd be on the line and she would be sorting different pills and putting them in bottles. It's like, you know, it just reminds me of that classic video you see, you know, of, of the of the assembly line, you know, of the men making trucks and the women doing stuff in the medical sector because they have, in quotes, smaller hands, which they might. I don't know. I didn't research. But yeah, so her mom was working in that industry, which is kind of cool to think about. And on her way to work, her mother, uh, Patty remembers um, her mom would leave the house with these windmill cookies. And I remember these windmill cookies myself. I don't think I eat them. Uh, I don't even know if they make them anymore, but I remember these kind of sugar, whatever kind of cookies that are shaped like windmills. She would leave the house with them and on the way out, feed the squirrels in the yard <laughs> and and then just go on off to work. She said that her, you know, her mother was a very kind, very kind person. So she remembers her fondly, which is great. When she was old enough and she was in that house in Farmington, you know, things were getting built up very quickly, she said. You know, she said the boom of Metro Detroit happened very quickly. And, of course, you know, people are building houses as fast as they can to get out of Detroit. And then once they do and everyone else sees, they're like, oh, I want one. See, And then, of course, there, it's just a snowball. So she's in Farmington, and one of the, th the things she did in high school was uh, she babysat for um, some kids in the neighborhood, she told me that she would get paid 50 cents per hour to babysit. And at first, I was like, okay, this is, all right, let's do some math. This is the 1960s. 50 cents, is that a lot? Like, I don't know. I feel like gas was 10 cents a gallon. That's, I feel like 50 cents is not a lot. And then I was like, okay, I, I, I kind of responded by just going, oh, yeah, right, and that's not a lot? And she was like, no, that's not a lot. <laughs> I was like, Okay, of course not, of course. And that was kind of just the standard back then is is you didn't pay, you know, kids very well. So it, it kind of just gave her some, a little bit of fun money because she would make, you know, three or four dollars um, every time she babysat, which is n still that much in that day. If you're wondering, now you know. 
Then she got a job at the, a little more high paying, at least, the Farmington Civic Theater, the movie theater. And I believe I've been there before. Uh, if it's still there, if it's the one I'm thinking of in downtown Farmington, it's beautiful. All the popcorn you can eat. This is what she told me. She said free popcorn when it wasn't busy. She would just load up on popcorn and she said she can still do it to this day. She will just eat herself sick on popcorn, which you know what? I respect that. I've gotten sick from eating popcorn once. I went to an AMC, I believe it was, Regal Entertainment, it's actually called. Um, I think that is AMC. I ate a whole large popcorn by myself with butter, definitely vomited. And was it worth it? I already told you it was, and it is still. So anyone that has a love for popcorn, I identify with. Anyone that worked at a movie theater and gets free popcorn, I don't even know what to say except for uh, jealousy is pouring over me at the moment. And so I didn't ask her if that got her too much into movies because I, I feel like it didn't. I did mention like, oh, with the free popcorn, you also get free movies. And she was like, oh, yeah. And so I didn't dig because it doesn't sound like she got the movie bug, which is too bad. And what she mentioned is the reason she was behind in high school is she started school early, as, as you might remember. She finished high school a year behind everyone in terms of she was uh, a year younger than everyone. Um, and so, no, oh my gosh, that makes total sense. I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry. I kept thinking she was held back and so she would be older. Yes, of course, she was younger because she started school early. Because she switched from the Detroit School District to um, the Metro Detroit School District, Farmington, the class grades were a little weird for her. So what they did in Detroit, and, and she said it was because of the, the saturation of people in Detroit, they would do half grades. You wouldn't do a full year. It sounded like there would be a couple months break. They, they would start a class of kids, and then you'd finish and then you'd wait, and the second, you know, the like, so there'd be like a, an A and a B, basically, to each grade. So she didn't finish what we would call eighth grade right before high school until the summer before her freshman year of high school. And so it made it a little weird, weird in terms of transitioning into high school because she didn't get to know as many people um, going into the high school. And it's just weird timing. I didn't know that's how they did things back then. It's very interesting to think about. And she just mentioned this because it, it kind of set her back socially. But she did finally, you know, of course, find her group of friends. And like everyone else, she would sneak around. She had strict parents. Her father was very strict. She said she was the first child as well. Can't imagine what that must be like. She would sneak out of windows. <laughs> and, and I'd only thought that happened in TV shows or movies, but she sure would. The coolest thing is, is uh, she would sneak out to go to her friend's drag racing, like kind of events or whatever. She had um, all of these girlfriends, and one of the girls actually had a car that she would race in Northville. And now Northville didn't come along till later in Metro Detroit in terms of the development of the suburbs. Northville was just still dirt, just kind of like farmland over there. They would go out, uh, a lot of the kids in the high school, and just drag race over there. And this is the second time already that I've heard of drag racing in high school. That's so, like, what? Like, you know, whatever. It's, the times are different. People keep telling me this. I get it. I'm just angry that I couldn't do it too. 
but uh, yeah, she said that she she ran with these girls. They were really cool. They called themselves the Skirt Shifters. <laughs> Fair enough. It seems really cool. She didn't race, but she loved watching. And she did mention that, uh, you know, back then, because it was the 60s, you know, late 50s into the 60s, it was all about cigarettes, all about cigarettes. If you smoked, you were cool. It didn't matter. No one cared. Like everyone smoked. And alcohol was big too, of course, but that was the time that just cigarettes were the coolest thing in the world. Since I don't like bread, I'm not a bread person, but since sliced bread, I'm still going to say it. So in the last thing she mentioned about high school, which I found very interesting and intriguing because I almost forgot about this, this time in history was it was kind of geared towards, okay, are you going to go to college? One. And what are you going to study? And that was mostly for the guys. Um, and two, are you a girl? Then if so, we're going to teach you home ec. And if not, if you don't want to do home ec, then you can learn to be a secretary. You can learn how to type and write. That's crazy. I didn't know that they put so much emphasis on that in high school, uh, but it makes sense. You know, it, it's kind of the, the proving grounds for what you'll be with your life, the school system. And she... She wasn't really sure what to think about that at the time she's telling me this. Like while she was in high school, she wasn't sure, all right, am I going to college or am I going to be a secretary or am I going to be a wife? Like she wasn't sure. And so she kind of just went with it. And um, in a second, I'll explain where she went with that. One of these girlfriends she had to kind of finish up high school, she would take her to, uh, or she would take all the girls to in her car to St. Mary's, the Christian school over there and I believe it's West Bloomfield uh, or maybe whatever the other city is over there um, in Metro Detroit. Um, and back then, you'd pretty much go there if you wanted to become a priest. You went there to study whatever they call that seminary school. And so all these kids, you know, were very serious. You know, they had serious parents. They were kind of squares. You know, they were studying the Bible every day. Nothing wrong with that but you have different priorities, right, in that situation. And so what the girls would do is go over and visit St. Mary's and kind of just cause trouble, you know? And then, of course, the guy started dating some of these girls and, you know, what happens there. Um, I don't need, I, I can only imagine how many priests were um, set, up, set upon a different path because uh, you can't marry as a priest. I don't know if that's still true to this day. I think it is in the Catholic Church. A lot of other churches... Uh, they've changed that. You can get married. But I think if you're Catholic, you can't do the marriage thing. Man, if I could give them some advice, just nix that rule. You know, you're probably turning off a lot of people. I just found that really funny because my brother actually went to St. Mary's High School. Not a priest. I will say that. So moving on, we already talked about this very strict dad. The reason she brought it up again later in the conversation was one day, and I didn't push too much into this, but she decided just to pack up and leave. Just left the house. I don't know if that meant she came back or not. I don't think she did because she was obviously, uh, they got there in high school. So I think that's kind of just when she decided to go out on her own. A lot of people, you know, it was more accepted to kind of be in the house through university or college because um, you'd stay more local in those days. And so I think she kind of left prematurely in that time. Obviously now it's very accepted to just leave immediately after high school, go somewhere for college, and then live your life. And then if you do go back to your parents, then everyone judges you. These are just different times. This is how the times change. Uh, when she was a senior in high school, her parents had a baby. 
gosh, this is what, I, how old was she? Like maybe 17? Yes, she graduated at 17, one year younger than everyone else. So she thought that was disgusting <laughs> because, I mean, yeah, of course, you think of your parents and you're like, oh, they still do that stuff. And then here, the way she explained it was, here's the proof that they do this stuff with a child. She was kind of angry about it. Of course, when they brought the baby home, this was her sister. It instantly fell in love. And what was really cool was she explained that they're so pretty close to this day. And you have that huge age gap, just giant age gap of 17 years. And they're still very good friends. That is really cool to hear. Also funny that the whole thing with the parents. So uh, yeah, you know how we shame stuff like that. Anyways, she skipped, She did end up skipping college because she got a job at the Fisher Building in Detroit, super famous building. I don't know if it's still there. I think it is. And she was working as a secretary in an insurance company. So she didn't do the college thing, but uh, she got a job and she was making money. And she was in Detroit, which is still, you know, cool to be there. And that is when she met a guy. This was kind of funny. It was a friend of a friend, and the friend that she that uh, she knew, his name was Frank Sinatra. Not that guy, obviously, uh, but sure enough, someone named their child Frank Sinatra. So a friend of Frank Sinatra's was this guy. This is where the car stuff comes back in. They did, after after some years, get a divorce, not before having, I believe it was two children. But she looked back on it, and she and I was like, yeah, so, you know, how did he woo you? Or like, you know, what got you interested in him? Or, you know, was it just attraction? Or how did they ask you out? Or did you do ask him out? She was like, honestly, when I think about it, he just had a really cool car. And I was like, is that how it works? But yeah, she wasn't proud of that. But, you know, when I think about it, whatever gets the conversation started, I don't mind. You know, no judgment as long as people are going into it and something blossoms from there, fine. If it's because someone has a cool car, that's fine. Look, nowadays, everyone's on a dating app, so you only see four photos of someone in a description. Like, is that any different than seeing that they have a cool car? I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. So uh, they did get married, and uh, they had two kids very quickly, she said. But she was very young. When she did look back on it, she didn't know, she says, she didn't really know what she wanted, and she was kind of just rolling with it because it seemed, of course, normal. But he wasn't there a lot after a couple of years. She attributes it to thinking that kind of the kids were too much and because it was too fast maybe and just too much work and too much stress. So ultimately this guy, he kind of developed like a, you know, he started to struggle with alcohol and he wasn't around. And this actually, she took something away from that. She said she learned how to take care of herself. You know, especially back then where it's like, you're a secretary, you're a wife, you know, it's like you're, you're taken, you're taken care of and you're, you're, you know, you're not thought of as, you know, whatever is equal. She said, yeah, sure enough. That's, uh, that, that helped her learn to take care of herself and her kids, which is kind of cool. Another thing, and this was a little bit deeper and I'm glad we got into it. And then, and I'm, I feel very lucky, um, to have heard this from her. She said that when she does kind of think more on it, it makes her think that she didn't really fight to help him change the habit, the, like the habit of drinking. And that got me thinking because it, 
it's interesting, right? Because there's always two sides of everything. So you have this person, let's say, let's say the situation was him struggling uh, with his life situation. You know, the kids come and he's like, oh crap, like I don't know what to do. And he's avoiding it and, you know, staying out and drinking. And uh, that's it. That's his response. Her response, of course, you know, which was warranted was, okay, he's not going to be around. I, it's not my job to fix him. I'm sure that's kind of what went through her head. I'm just going to let this, you know, let this die kind of thing. And so that's, that's what happens is when two people, um, I think it's just a testament to communication, sacrifice, you know, this is what a relationship is, you know, and that's, what's beautiful about talking to all these kinds of people, you know, the elder, look, the elders this is the point of this project. Jeez, the elders have the knowledge because they've been through it. And they, and, you know, and God forbid they talk to the people, which I'm sure they did before them, their elders, like, you know, you're, you're looking at multiple generations of knowledge of life experience that you can learn from. She said, you know, it, it made her think, all right, what did I go through with my parents because of my situation? Because the way they treated me, why did that lead me to be, to be able to react like this? And so it kind of it kind of got her thinking about herself, which is really cool because you can't you can't fix someone else, right? You can only work on yourself even when things go wrong, maybe because of someone else or maybe with someone else in her situation. That is really cool. So she does regret not trying to help, and that was cool to hear her say that. And it it, it kind of came down to her saying, you know, what did I allow to happen in relationships? In, or, in, in order for them to be able to fail. And that kind of responsibility, taking that responsibility, mm, I love it. I, I really do. So sad things didn't work out, but life happens. And I'm glad she took something from it. It wasn't easy being a single parent, right? That's what's next. I asked her about it, um, especially back then. But uh, she did what she had to do. She worked and, you know, luckily he wanted to spend time with the kids. That was a good situation. And then many years later, she met the man she's with now. By then she had moved to Howell, if you know where Howell, Michigan is, H-O-W-E-L. I think it's one L. Interesting place Howell is. Howell and Brighton are kind of the new spot for families to, you know, because the Farmingtons and the Royal Oaks and the Livonias, they're too saturated now. It's hard. Like, let's say you're someone my age and you're doing what you're supposed to do, right? And you're having children or you're having a family or you're trying to buy a house. It's hard to do that still because the next gen, this generation that I'm talking to hasn't really moved out yet. You know, they haven't entered the homes or whatever. And so they still own their homes and everyone's still kind of holding on to all this stuff. And so, Brighton and Howell are kind of this new, uh, this new place to, to build a family for young people. She's working Howell for this chemical company. And the story, this is a cool story, I'll tell it. The story goes, she was in the front office, and what she would do is she'd basically send all the requests back to the lab, and she'd say, okay, we need you guys to try to make this kind of chemical makeup, or we need you to mix this for us. And I guess in this one moment in time, they kept sending requests back to the lab, wouldn't get a response. Things were not showing up on time. So of course, Patty reports it. Everyone has a meeting. Patty's in the meeting and this guy comes in and he's, he's, he's one of the chemists, you know, whatever. 
He's answering the questions. And the meeting's done. And everyone's happy, I guess. Then she put it, let me quote her. Then she put it, um, we had this meeting and from there he kind of showed up everywhere. (laughs) Uh, So obviously he was interested in her. She had been basically dating after the divorce. She told herself that she would never get married again. She uh, did mention that she would date people that were also divorced because, you know, they were in the same situation. They were like never again kind of thing. Um, but but there were there were a few failed relationships, she told me, which I'm glad that she was being honest. And then this guy comes around. His name's Doug. And so Doug comes around. What was kind of cool is she said that they lived together for many years. Sooner or later, she didn't realize that she was open to marriage, but she was. It was one of those things. They were on vacation with their friends, and they saw these people getting married on the beach. And he just said a little something like, oh, that's a, that's a cool way to get married. That looks really fun and relaxing. And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's probably cool. They get back home. And she she says it the way, like, you know, he, how, how, how like romantic he is. And I guess when they were home, he was like, wait, so should we get married or what should we do? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. Like, that's fine. And, you know, my opinion, of course, since I'm allowed to say my opinion in this, I don't believe in marriage myself. Maybe that'll change. I do understand that everyone says this at one time, right? But I don't believe in it for some reasons. And I think this is a different era in terms of human existence. And uh, we have to think about different things. So anyway, I'm glad that she admitted that she was kind of in an unhealthy way turning herself off to it. And then she, she found the right guy to do it with. And so she did. Sure enough. They moved to Georgia. That's where they are now, simply because it's a beautiful place down there in the city they live in, like Palm, whatever, um, Palm Grove or Palm, whatever, uh, Georgia. And her daughter lives there. They have land she can, so they can visit the daughter. They live in a community where you can just go around golf carts anywhere. There's like 100 miles of golf cart trail. She got it figured out, and she did say, you know, it, it was tough leaving kids behind. So she has two other kids, you know, and she she basically said, you know, you can't be around all your kids anymore because everyone's spread out. So the whole idea of, you know, the old days when everyone was in the same city, and that's just the way it, we like. You didn't leave for a reason. Your if your family was like, stay with us. She kind of came into the new era where everyone is moving around, and so she just kind of she had to make a decision for herself. And she's glad she did. So she said, um, oh, and this is going back. And this is the, the, the kind of lesson, because I, I at the end of every interview, I ask people, you know, what lesson can you pass on to, you know, your the family member that's going to be watching this, whatever, 50, 100 years, um, like Art said, a thousand years from now. I haven't done his podcast yet, so that's a little teaser, actually. <laughs> but but yeah, she she said, when you look back on all of your relationships, uh, what you should be able to do is um, figure out what you are the, de- the denominator in. And for her, um, there were many ways, the, the way the relationships fell apart, there were ways that she was the, the denominator in the same way in each one of those. You know, it was just her basically reminding herself and passing that on, you know, we're all, we're all able to say, not my fault. Or we're all able to find excuses for things that go wrong or for things that we do that are wrong. What she said was, you need to figure out what you're doing and what your part in that is. 
and, and find a way to fix that or at least deal with it um, as a precursor, right? So great knowledge from Patty. I'm very jealous that she can drive everywhere in a golf cart. During our conversation, someone came to the door. It was a neighbor. It was the most genuine conversation I've witnessed in a while. It sounds like it's a beautiful life for her. I'm so lucky to have heard um, all of those beautiful things through history that she was able to, to share with me. Thank you for listening.